recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery. This is the Poetry Project. I'm like that. All right? Okay, cool. Okay, so this is a walk through um, Francesca Capone's work, um, perhaps more than a coherent or necessarily cohesive introduction. Um, because I know you're all expecting that. So I hope you can forgive me for that. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I swear that I'll get back to where I'm trying to go by the end of this. So uh, four years ago when I visited Oakland for the first time, I found a copy of Rosemary Waldrop's Camp Printing at Moe's. Um, certainly somewhat weather-beaten, the book's most striking feature, beyond the fact of its uh, pretty incredible smears and sunbursts of text, was the inscription beside the price, as is. But uh, what could as-is mean when the sight of the text, that abysmal re-encoding of language that Waldrop employs in the book, is already superseded by the fact of the language lost and opened in its absence? And what is that relation, yes, to James Camp, the original poet, but also to the fact of the camp, that state of exception that forms the very basis for the ability to write the unwritable afterimage of what text cannot be in its necessary post-existent nightmare of space? Or... What is the projection into space, light, distance, distortion, of a text? Is it, as Ad Reinhardt said, loosely in connection to his non-happenings, quote, the word human is not only disreputable, it's fake, it is something that hangs around, I suppose, in the romantic? Or the projection being the human figure still restricted by the desire to, as Dickens said of one giving a magic lantern projected lecture on astronomy, a, quote, tapping away at the heavenly bodies like a wearisome woodpecker. Well, projection. Well, what is projection? Let's project. Um, projection, or the flattened discourse in its digital recapitulation, anticipates its own mutilation and insufficiency. In fact, relishes in its self-obfuscation in the clarity of projection, which leads us to ask, as Hito Styrel does, what are the policies already in place that define the separation of noise from information, or that even define noise and information as such in the first place? Who or what decides what the camera will see? How is it being done? By whom or what? And why is this even important? I was thinking about this today while walking past one of my favorite storefronts in Manhattan, Park Avenue Safe Site on 25th Street in Park. In the window, in addition to being able to uh, watch LASIK surgery being done live, one can also see numerous images of stylish women posing with a Borzoi, Safe Sight's mascot, who can be rented at per hour rates. It is notable in this case that the Borzoi in Tolstoy's childhood, I think it's that book, I didn't go back to it, um, is the only non-human character that is endowed with independent discourse opening the projected reel to animal sight, an animal sight in anticipation of death. I think it's the, the scene where um, there's, his mother is lying in state in their house. Um, Borzois, okay, Borzois, everyone knows them, uh, like Salukis, or for that matter, greyhounds, um, are members of the family of dogs known as sight hounds, who hunt by sight and speed, like, as I said, greyhounds, instead of by scent, like bloodhounds. Okay, so, borzois become bored with what they see as pointless, repetitive activ activity in training, and so they present us with the problem of projection. 
So how do we learn by sight when the accrual of the surface demands mutation to keep us obedient? In other words, to instill habit through the non-habitual. And what of the Borzoi depicted in the portrait of Sarah Bernhardt by Claren Henderson, in which the Borzoi is virtually subsumed into a two-headed mass with Bernhardt at the other end when we know of her with some slight exception, when what we know of her with some slight exceptions is so determined by the division of sight, sound, and text. And then, to turn back to Styrel for a moment, how in the digital age do we understand face from butt or Shakespeare's two-headed fish made all the more by the colonization of appearance and reproduction through the incorporeal labor of identification and aerial subsumed in the capital B book. Then, to turn to Francesca's writing, uh, how the endlessness of the scroll, the face, the book, etc., becomes an internal text, one that is renewed because of the indeterminacy of the trained eye to translate the anticipated text as is when what is has been lost itself as safe sight, as the independent discourse of movement. Or perhaps most importantly, the question of the fabric of language and a divergence within artifice, whereby, say, in her work, I Honor the Huge Blue, the cascade of Niedeker's language becomes a non-self-identical linguistic projection on a rolling screen. What is the self-identical in the reduction of sight that is the diminished, ca diminished capacity of language to do anything but expand its consequence, its depth of activity in who and what is being done to how? Please welcome Francesca Capone to the Poetry Project. Thank you, Judah. I'm uh, preceded by Rosemary Waldrop and Hector Sterl. I don't know. <laughs> Lucky me. Um, so I'm going to read, start with a poem that was written after this weaving. You cower back into the seed, a quandary, that fleck until future, or velvet air inside a tiny space until fledgling when long is newly blank and latent diamonds wake in darkness to see the constellation and feel nothing except facets, facts of salt and fissure, snow and soil, bone and ebony, mourning and piety for nothing, whereas new apartment walls are empty in crawl space where no openings had been constructed, so forgotten air melds with particulate matter and dig deeper into under-earth space, similar to atmosphere space and equally unfamiliar to those on two legs or without wings, as long as flickering shadows of britches or an envelope filled with fresh carbon paper, void of message and also saturated like a blank page, wide open like how there is a moment right before the sun has risen and a moment right before it sets, while also considering the moon's intermedial stages between waxing and waning, or even finding smooth rocks on pure sand beaches having been broken down by time and keep scribbling on or to an unexpected and inexhaustible rhythm, listening and yelling simultaneously, knowing somewhere sediments of coal could be found in mountains of quartz and it's only a matter of a pick and a chisel, or spilling India ink into a bowl of milk and trying to understand a difference in density, just to see what it would look like, and then staring at the man in painter's pants until his pupils could draw lines straight into yours and become fortified, and imaginary people come and hang their clean sheets on it with clothespins until the line sags and he looks away. So now I'm going to read from a longer series of work called Weaving Language, um, and it's both in the, f the form of visual and written, and while also trying to collapse the two. And this essay is primarily composed of quotations, which I'll attribute as I go through it. Um, it's called Language is Image, Paper, Code, and Cloth. 
Languages image paper code and cloth, a spliced rope, numerous codes intricately connected to the other forming an invisible and almost seamless connection. A gesture towards drawing a thread around a sphere as it spins, marking developments in recorded language, simultaneity, extemporaneous, a knot. Nomad, weaver, gathering utterance, farmer, weaver, reaping, notation. Along with cave paintings, threads were amongst the earliest transmitters of meaning. In Peru, where no written language is in the generally understood sense had developed even by the time of the conquest in the 16th century, we find, to my mind, not in spite of this, but because of it, one of the highest textile cultures we have come to know, Ani Albers. The textile industry, in fact, is older than pottery and perhaps even than agriculture and stock breeding, and it probably consumed far more hours of labor per year in the temperate climates than pottery and food production put together. Up until the Industrial Revolution and into this century, many peasant societies, women spent every available moment spinning, weaving, and sewing, and even had men helping them in Europe, shearing sheep, curing and hackling flax, occasionally also spinning or weaving, or at least entertaining them while they worked late into the evenings, Elizabeth J.W. Barber. For millennia, handwoven textiles have provided a place for recording information, memory, and symbolic per perception, and the means to communicate social, magical, and or religious ideas and values. Especially important to the language and meaning of textiles has been association between the act of weaving and the generative aspect of life. Since prehistoric times, patterned cloth have served as a bridge between the weaver, traditionally female, and the creatrix, the universal source of all life. One of the earliest known messages of creative veneration is the Kaleem pattern design of the birth-giving womb from the Katal Hayuk in 6400 to 5700 BCE. Through fields of imagery and symbols of fertility nurturance, continuity and regeneration, life-giving designs, for instance, the diamond glyph, the labyrinth motif, or the birth symbol, were imbued with sacred qualities. Patterns laid out since ancient times functioned as an alphabet of the metaphysical. They may be viewed as an endless incantation given visual form, like a poem or prayer that gives sight and sound to the cosmos and West. The Anatolium Kalim is the expression of a tradition dating back around 9,000 years, a tradition that has been maintained by women without a break for hundreds of generations. In the Neolithic era, that is, the infancy of the human race, when the Kalim was born, the images surfaced spontaneously from the inner world, speaking of its eternal protagonists, love, life, death, and power. Thus, it is possible to trace the unchanging decorative forms of the Kalim, a, a means of communication that was developed by cultures remote in time, and can explain to us insights, thoughts, and feelings through records that are several thousand years older than writing itself. Following this symbolic line of thought, we may be able to understand why the Kaleem was woven exclusively by women. The art of weaving, the Kaleem was transmitted orally from mother to daughter in keeping with a symbolic tra tra tradition that was unconscious but powerful, powerful and active. Dario Val Kanrengi. Contemporary Western culture does not represent women's work as contributing to the making of, of culture or of history, but as an activity marginal to both. In his well-known essay, Femininity, Sigmund Freud proposed that though women have made few contributions to the discoveries and inventions in the history of civilization, the one technique which they may have invented is that of plating and weaving. I'm inclined to believe that Freud's comment on the origins of weaving was based on his own anthropological research, which most likely supplied him with enough evidence to represent weaving as a female practice. Anthropological evidence, on the contrary, suggests otherwise. 
that weaving and cloth were not incidental to culture, but were vital forces in establishing, homogenizing, and perpetuating many societies. Although weaving represents only one kind of cloth-making activity, it did evolve out of the earliest civilization and to a great extent served as a catalyst for their progress. Women wove textiles, not metaphors for lack. This cloth, whether it was embroidered, woven, or dyed, with the stories or symbols particular to their tribe, indicates the importance presence of the contribution of women to the creation of culture, its texts, and its history. Recent evidence has pushed back the dates of weaving from the real Neolithic period of settled tribes to the dim prehistory of the Paleolithic period. Until a few years ago, the earliest known woven fragment was excavated in Katal Hayuk in South Central Turkey. Traditionally, the history of weaving is a history of women's work. Anthropological research has concluded that invariably, women produce most of the textiles in the ancient world. By participating in the production of textiles, as well as the community that existed because of that production, women took part in the first textual practices, recording their society's stories, myths, and sacred beliefs in symbols woven or embroidered on their textiles. The scene they conveyed constitutes society's first texts. There are archaeologists who have esteemed the importance of textiles in the weaver who produced them. Junius Bird, an expert in ancient South American textiles, exemplifies this kind of researcher. His work significantly advanced the study of South American textiles, but did so in a way that personalized this field of research. As one colleague had written of Bird, a newly detected knot in an old textile would be something that she did. She, the person who made the fabric thousands of years ago, deserves commendation. Indeed, our understanding of the history needs to, be, needs to expand to include women as significant contributors to culture. As Paige Dubois proposes, we need to imagine otherwise. The practice of writing on, on or weaving inscriptions into textiles is well known in Egypt from pharaonic times onward. Oh, sorry, I didn't attribute that. Karen Sullivan Kruger. The practice of writing on or weaving on inscriptions into textiles is well known in Egypt from pharaonic times onwards. It was customary to weave small marks into the selvage or corner of a textile to identify the weaver or owner of a cloth. More elaborately woven inscriptions appear on royal textiles and, and could include a name, as can, been see, can be seen on Tuthmosis IV, a textile now in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Or they could include long messages about the role of the pharaoh and how he was strong, brave, and conquering. Such inscriptions can be found on one of the so-called falcon tunics belonging to the famous Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun. In other cases, textiles were treated in the same way as papyrus, namely to transfer messages, and had text written in black ink on the cloth. Some of these messages are, a religious nature, are of a religious nature, and more specifically had a funerary function. This type of message often includes extracts from the Book of the Dead, or they take the form of simple strips of cloth that include the name of the deceased. Other examples of texts on cloth are more prosaic and are simple laundry or shopping lists. Weaving is almost... oh. Cecilia Fluke, and Gisela Hemlock. Weaving is almost always an attribute of female characters in Greek literature, much as army, armor or weaponry is the, the attribute of males. When we first encounter the radiant Helen in the Iliad, she is weaving a, growing, a growing web, a dark red folding robe, working into the weft the endless bloody struggles, stallion-breaking Trojans and Argives armed in bronze, had suffered all for her at the god of the battle's hands. Helen's red web symbolically reproduces the web of violence her beauty was unleashed upon the world, and in general, like arms, weaving is not a simple emblem of domestic order and harmony. Mm -hmm. 
turned it off, Judah. Um, sorry. And Harmony. I lost my spot. <laughs> uh, arms weaving is not a simple do- uh, emblem of domestic order and harmony. It can even be a weapon in its own right through which women are able to achieve their ends. Weaving and unweaving famously emblematizes the, meani- the means through which faithful Penelope, the crafty and exemplary wife, keeps her suitors at bay while her husband makes zig- his zigzag way home. But the tapestries Clytemnestra and her maids wove for the homecoming of Agamemnon were a trap. Agamemnon, urged by his treacherous wife to walk on purple cloths, is entangled and tethered and rendered helpless by what presented in a ceremony of welcome, he is slain. Andromache weaves a warm cloth for her noble husband Hector, but Medea weaves a poisoned garment through which she kills the princess and her unfaithful husband has fallen, that her unfaithful husband has fallen in love with. The woven object is at once a symbol of protection and betrayal, Arthur C. Danto. In ancient times, writing and inscriptions were generally made on tablets of bamboo or on pieces of silk called chi, but silk being costly and bamboo heavy, they were not convenient to, lose, to use. Silun then initiated the idea of making paper from the bark of trees, remnants of hemp, rags of cloth, and fishing nets. Joseph Needham, that's from China. The main types of inscriptions on textiles can be summarized as follows. Explanatory comments are words in connections with figural ornamentation representations or, and ornamentational representations, prayers, quotations from the Bible, and wishes with apotropaic functions that could be amuletic or magical in character. Abstract texts in the form, for example, of cryptograms, ciphers, rows of repeated s- syllables, and maybe mock inscriptions, documentary texts, as testified by many Arab Taraz inscriptions, that mention specific rulers, producers, dates, etc. The desire to enhance the owner or donor's social status is a prominent feature not only of textiles with names, but of virtually all inscribed objects, regardless of the content of the text. In a literature, in a literature, literate society containing many illiterates, the socially distinctive function of written text can hardly be overestimated. This is particularly obvious in the case of public texts which include inscriptions on garments that are worn ostensibly or hangings that are exposed in a house or a church. Through the action of being read, inscriptions establish a link between a literate beholder and a literate owner or donor. In addition to a process of intellectual interaction, the written text initiates a process of social interaction. In other words, apart from the messages conveyed by their contents, inscriptions articulate status. This is in Egypt. Cecilia Fluke and Gisela Hemlock. Taraz forms a verb in Persian that means to weave, to adorn, or to compose poetry. As a verb, it also also appears in compounds such as sukhan taraz, word weaving, eloquent, that is used to describe poets. For textiles, the straight stitch bakya is a parallel to the shared tradition of songs. It is learned and repeated. This is in contrast to gulduzi, which involves creativity in the drawing of of designs. Thus far, both poetry and sewing continue to dwell on relatively traditional themes. By contrasting music, poetry, and textiles, we can enlarge our understanding of the meaning dimension and not view textile arts in isolation. Mary Martin. The Kiche Maya, word zeeb, is used to refer to writing, but also refers to figures, designs, and diagrams in general, whether they be drawn, painted, engraved, embroidered, or woven. Tim Ingold. 
The Latin roots of certain words share functionality between textiles and typography. Text and textile are from textum, meaning woven fabric or web. Context is from contextere, meaning to weave together or connect. Kente cloth, created primarily by the Asante and Yu peoples of Ghana and Togo, have been made from long and narrow woven strips that are stitched together to make larger tapestries. Each geometric pat woven pattern represents a, symb a symb specific symbolic meaning or traditional proverbial narrative. Each color has a symbolic meaning as well. For wealthy and important chiefs whose tre treasures contain many cloths, the potential, to, the potential exists to convey select messages to a cloth literate audience by means of attire, Doran H. Ross. In the weavings and rugs, we are faced with a highly elaborate, elaborate language made up of a vocabulary of forms and colors combined by structure in a grammar that reflects the organization of time and space. This language is learned in the same way as the spoken mother tongue. A little girl sits behind her mother at the loom, and her eye learns to judge what can be done or what can't, what, what looks attractive and what doesn't. She becomes a master or mualima when she has absorbed all of the elements, patterns, and structures so thoroughly that she is able to improvise on any given subject. She can then concentrate on how to express herself without any pre-established design, Bert Flint. That's from Morocco. Among the people of Kandingji, on the middle Sipak River in Papua New Guinea, the most important man in every group keeps a knotted cord, some six to eight meters long and three centimeters thick, which is said to represent the primal migration in which the founder of the clan, following the path of the crocodile, journeyed from place to place. Each large knot in the cord into which is woven a dried piece of beetle nutshell represents a primal place where the smaller knots preceding it stand for the secret names of the totem dwelling in that place. In important ceremonies, the owner of the cord lets it run through his fingers, rather as though he were handling a rosary, singing each place and its associated totems. Thus, the movement of slipping the cord through the fingers corresponds to the movement of the, cl that the, clan, of the clan founder as he journeyed from one settlement to the next, Tim Ingold. The Inca spoke Quechua, but their only recorded language discovered to date was a system of knotted cords called kipu, or spelled with a Q or a K. Anthropologists have gleaned that the system was used for counting and various economic records, and some hypothesize that it was used to record messages. An ancient metaphor, thought is thread, and the rank raconteur is a spitter of yarns, but the true storyteller, the poet, is a weaver. The scribes made this old and audible abstraction into a new and visible fact. After long practice, their work took on such an even, flexible texture that they called the written page a textus, which means cloth. The typesetting device, whether it happens to be a computer or a composing stick, functions like a loom, and the typographer, like the scribe, normally aims to weave the text as evenly as possible. Good letter forms are designed to give a lively, even texture, but careless spacing of letters, lines, and words can tear this fabric apart. Robert Bringhurst. In Bali, embroiderers are used as offerings in rituals and celebrations connected to Hindu religious beliefs and practices. They depict in striking form the epics and myths that are an essential art of Balinese culture. Their images mirror ancient history, remind people of their mythological past, and may underscore the relevance to the present. Such embroideries serve as the preservation and transmission of culture. Joseph Fisher. The monument... Oh. 
Researching artifacts can be an endless process, and every anom anomalous discovery jeopardizes the little meth methodological order that has already been achieved. War rugs, present an added war rugs, <laughs> war rugs present an added paradox. They are numerous and a relatively recent phenomenon, although their dating is sometimes uncertain, and their true or origins are often obscure. Since the 1970s, at a crucial moment for an otherwise fossilized field like rug making, new factors have come into play, such as the efforts of various clans and whole tribal groups that have never previously woven rugs. War and the displacement of huge sections of the population, as well as substantial changes in methods of production and trade, have contributed to an unprecedented cultural melting pot, which has given rise to these extraordinary byproducts of a defla deflagrated world. Those probably predating the war seem to come from a long lost past, like dazzling archaeological treasures kept miraculously intact, but their history is also our own and can apparently be reconstructed and documented. However, in Afghanistan, even memory, like the countless accumulating corpses, has been overwhelmed and crushed. For this reason, despite their contemporaneity, the only unmistakable data on these rugs is their depiction of an existing modernity taken to its paradoxical extremes. Enrico Mascaloni. How do we choose our specific material, our means of communication, accidentally? Something speaks to us, a sound, a touch, a hardness, a softness. It catches us and asks us to be formed. We are finding out language, and as we go along, we learn to obey their rules and their limits. Ani Albers. We have seen the knotted quipus from Peru that enigmatically encrypt time and place into an organized language. The tribal people of southern China, Thailand, Laos, Vietnam, and Burma have a similar, similar encryption of place in their textiles. What does this do, this keeping of symbol, this marking out of territory, this vital mapping and charting of a people that fights encroachment on a daily basis? It argues against the theory that women occupy an inferior cultural role. Women are the record, people, record keepers of the culture. Weaving historical scrolls and maps into textiles, rendering space into geometric patterns, Additionally, th this also maps migrations, and today this is important in a time when nomadic groups have stopped their peripatetic movements and settled within a larger and more impersonal landscape. In just this aspect, one can see that not only does a woman make history, but she can also turn that history into a symbolic language, thereby abstracting it. Then it is not hard to see how this would translate into the rugs. The rugs are the language of a people regrouping. They are indicators of flux, chaos, and order. Randall Morris. In another register, the coalescence between women and textiles has produced a, fixi a fixity of the identity in the West, which has named but, not always, but has not always expanded or moved beyond a single definition of both terms. Perhaps I, you, we in the West can speak with some confidence about women's achievements in general, both in autobiographical writing and textiles, but I would argue that each category remains provisional as a tentative grammar of transformations and differences. I believe that there are new possibilities of both disciplines of writing and textiles in an ongoing relation which provides an eclectically errant and cultural disruptive range of practices within an expanded field of cultural terms and definitions, Janice Jeffries. Messages, notations, records, fragmented glimpses, weavings allude to the written signature and the emotion of handwriting. The weavings are drawings in thread as well as musings, a form of thinking out loud. The weavings are experienced as a felt, primordial, precognitive language, and West. 
to demonstrate the potential usefulness of historic textiles as primary source materials for an understanding of social, economic, cultural, political, and religious developments in a particular society within a specific time range. To approach textiles, the most intimate of cultural artifacts, from a variety of perspectives, and convey the, these by means of both exhibition and publication. Carol Beyer. Extracting word from weave, the gesture of attempt as a poem with grammar as an outline, informed, intuited, interpreted, extrapolating material from material, a code embedded in a surface, follow line of thread towards textual interlacing, a visual interlacing, a readerly experience, a reading prompt, a passage revealed through the process of making, textiles at large, makers, weavers, knitters, knotters of material, poetics on bodies, beds, floors, pitched into tents, in tombs until excavated, raveled message, knotted intentions, silent until voiced. From writer, weaver, to reader, reader. Writers at large, poets, setters of type, letter formers, recorders, inscribing, composing, pronouncing, announcing, posting. Readers of text, aisles. Rhyme, repeat aloud. Before fiber, timber, before print, inscription. Reforming the commonplace timeline, the history of writing, braiding into the future of writing. Imagined ellipsis at the foot of each page. Space for text to step into, or a notation to embroider. Ligature or thread form. Woven structure repeats, writing repeats, taken apart and sewn together, editing a poem. Embellishing the substrate of empty cloth, page. Meaning left open, sentence structure rearranged. Arranging word pieces with a mind to enter the weaving, roped in. Every row of weaving, packed down with the beater, another line of written language. Thank you. David Henderson is going to introduce uh, Miriam, who's uh, one of our Emerge Surface B fellows at the Poetry Project. Um, so I won't bother you anymore with my lugubrious anecdotes. Um, so David Henderson, everyone, Please. Well, um, it's great to be introducing Miriam, who I think is a really, really, really excellent poet. And um, Miriam Atkins, at this, I'm glad to introduce her at this Monday night gathering of poets that is a direct transmission uh, with the original Monday night series that began at various coffee shops in the vicinity over five decades ago. So this is the Monday night reading was the reading where everybody went to. Uh, Miriam and I are participating in the Emerge Surface B mentorship program that is sponsored by the Poetry Project and the Jerome Foundation. And of course, as you, you should know, and never can say this enough, the Poetry Project has been uh, dealing with this, these, mon these reading series here at the church for, m for many decades. And so they really are a great uh, um, element, essential element of uh, poetry, especially downtown. Now, in terms of Miriam Atkins, Atkins, I feel that she is a poet that is out there on her own poetically in a conscious way that creates 
an impressive balance between her scholarly work, and she is a scholar, she's in the doctoral program at um, CUNY, CUNY Graduate School. Her teaching, she's begun teaching at uh, uh, Lehman College in the Bronx, and um, I met her class the other day at the uh, Chatbook Festival, and they were quite interesting group of uh, people, and very excited about her as a teacher. And she also is a, a performance artist who, does, who works in the community with different uh, local artists, uh, filmmakers, that kind of, uh, musicians, et cetera, et cetera. And she puts on performances and participates in performances. Uh, her close, visceral poetry is often juxtaposed with surprisingly transformative, uh, mysterious, dangerous realms of imagination she courageously explores. Yet, she's also a sport, uh, as her poetry can just as easily give way to humor, whimsy, uh, within a broad range of adventures, as I like to call them. Mary Mackin mediates, as, as, all do, as all poets do, between her own experience and what appears on the page. And I'm glad that you're gonna be able to, to deal with this and listen to what she's doing I've been experiencing her poetry over a period of time and not pushing myself, uh, or it, but uh, it's been a, a, a very strong and uh, enlivening experience. Uh, she, she often reaches unique dimensions beyond antecedent. I would uh, hold that a lot of her powers lay within her personal particulars. Uh, that would be especially of in, and especially ESP period of immediate ancestry and love, all ongoing and ancient simultaneously. Miriam Atkin. Okay. I wanna thank the Poetry Project um, and I want to thank, um, I guess everyone who's been a close and generous reader of my work recently and over the years. Um, so Max Crandall and Morgan Vo, the other fellows in the, in the fellowship program, um, I've been reading work with them, them reading mine, me reading theirs, and that has um, been really wonderful. And then I guess everyone else I know who has consistently read my work, like Richard Bergeron and Jonathan Vincent. Um, yeah, that's everyone who's here <laughs> who I can mention, I think. Liz. <laughs> Um, and David, of course, um, yeah, so his insight and the insight of everyone else I've mentioned has been um, indispensable. Okay. Um, so the first poem I'm going to read is something like a mantra. Um, for, I guess, the past 10 years or so, I've, I've been an insomniac. 
And I often have the experience of um, the contents of my mind feeling very sharp and abrasive. Um, I think it's the experience of too much language, um, which can be really heavy at night. And um, it's not something that I enjoy. Um, but I'm a poet, um, so it's a funny problem to be plagued by. But um, So anyway, this is a kind of mantra to liquefy thought. And um, I imagined uh, thought. I, I imagined the liquef li liquefaction of thought. Is it liquefaction? I don't know. Um, to look like sex between a book and a field mouse. And it's something I can stand back and watch. Um, so, okay, this is called, and I think many of you have heard this a lot, but you'll hear it again. <laughs> um, okay, the concept hurts. This is a rock. The concept hurts. Bite that thought into a blood formula. Thus begins a sluice race down. Train the items to wonder where they slip to. A felt well of ocean rimmed in brush. Find the bottom of the body. It is waiting on a pang of wood. Think hard, rest on rocks. Let your flesh hang. Now you are a common animal. You are a common animal. You are a common animal looking on. A common animal looking on and on. And on your muddy foot, you see a clean mark a hairline crack where the last line broke. Suspended from the balmy tree cover, the letters loosen, falling down around your claws into the wet rot of forest. The common animal with a fractured foot nestled in leaves looking on as the book breaks down. In the musky wood, watch the face of your beloved book as it relinquishes volition. Watch the taut binding soften as you let your eyes settle. The book breaks the show once it sees the common animal is looking. 
On the warm forest floor, words want to be watched. You shiver in your fur as the letter settles with you. See its fine displayed angles sink into your look. See tact falter as it lights upon your ear. And the Spanish moss, the drinking pool, the lily pads, the beetle husks, the oak stump, the fern patch, the bed of shale, the sparrow bones are starting to break down. We should remember our lovemaking in the woods before it's frosted over. So let me begin to collect the dim traces of this presentation. As it stands, what I see is only a mountain of blurred acorns tumbling onto a row of obfuscated chairs. The ripped surface of the forest hides the trees that sheltered us, scattered with the murky remains of a well-attended exhibition, faded to an obscure site of wreckage littered with illegible books. Shreds of paper piled on three-legged tables with splintered side supports. Warped wooden surfaces tip downward as bric-a-brac slides to the floor. Sonic devices with digital components lie disemboweled, valves and sockets wrenched from their settings. Cables peeled and stripped. Dampers, hammers, bridge pins, key pins, knobs, jacks, and pickups. Pick up a part and chuck it. Um, okay, so the next poem is um, about pictures of bodies and about real bodies. It's called The Image Moves Toward Me. I remember a day at the pond in the park and the geese are gathering for my image. Other events too, from today for example, collect themselves around the pond. On a summer day, a husband with a body like an apartment building sits on a rock. His tailbone is firmly planted as it pivots toward me, rotating his head. And when the eyes land, they are clumsy and open. The arboreal hand on which the body leans knows the rock well, but the man looks to have no clue how capable his hand is. The image moves toward me. The hand is oblivious, holding fast to its habit. But here comes my cousin in her flop-footed way, skipping over 
laughing like a beagle. She would probably collide with a low branch and fall down crying. My cousin has a big mouth that opens and closes. She has little control of her eyes as they look to us eagerly. They are turning inward for my poem as the others trickle in. Friends in light, comfortable dresses coming to sit in the grass. Their bodies inside of their dresses are moving about, their arms as if in sleeves of sparse hair, glinting in the summer sun. Friends in shorts carrying backpacks. Some of them sit, some lean, some lie spread out. We are a family together, rough housing in the grass, reading magazines, clipping our nails, humming the worst TV jingles, hanging out with messy hair and pink shoulders, telling a funny story about the youngest. All the nipples seem to listen, hidden in their undershirts. Dicks resting their heads on downy thighs or tumbling over into this image. Um, <clears throat> the next poem is based upon a conversation I overheard a while back about um, developmentally disabled people being sent on suicide missions in the Middle East. And um, after I heard this, I wondered what the origin was. Um, and so I researched it online. And I wrote a poem based on what I found. Um, and I guess a theme here, which is something that somehow has shown up in quite a bit of my work is um, thinking about how we might enlist animals or ghosts to settle our most obdurate human conflicts. Um, so this is called Hogtied, I am a Pigeon. And it's, uh, it's more of a flash fiction prose poem than a poem. Remote-controlled explosives strapped to two women with Down syndrome detonated in a coordinated attack on pet bazaars Friday. Local police said the woman in the first attack sold cream in the morning at the market and was known to locals as the crazy lady. Police initially said the bomb at Al Ghazal Market was hidden in a box of birds but determined it was a suicide attack after finding the woman's head, an officer said, speaking on condition of anonymity because he wasn't authorized to release the information. I just remember the horrible scene of the bodies of dead and wounded people mixed with the blood of animals and birds, said a pigeon vendor named Ali. 
He noted that the market had been particularly busy because it was a pleasantly crisp and clear winter day after a recent cold spell. Two weeks prior, during the worst of the bad weather, a long-eared hedgehog, two Turkish hamsters, and a white-toothed shrew roamed the frozen brush at Amatsia woodlands, searching to restore their depleted winter reserves. The air was thin and dry, and the ice crystals suspended from tree limbs were wholly without brilliance. To the foragers, death seemed imminent, and all three turned their faces skyward as they were gripped by a staggering vision. The dull clouds had parted as a golden head revealed itself. The eyes, nose, and mouth flickered like the spinning emblems of a slot machine without ever resolving in an identity of form. Each rapt animal saw the hovering apparition as a perfect representation of his own genetic type. Hedgehog, hamster, shrew, respectively transfixed by a luminous mirror image, the self presented as pure schematic ideal, a universal physiognomy with an unmistakable suchness suspended between the brittle webbing of trees. The forest was still as its inhabitants from all corners paused on the depleted earth to gaze up at the unintelligible face, its celestial fur smoothed to the texture of cream. Um, the next two poems are love poems. And this one is called Love Poem. I am so alone with you. I love how you sit stock still, whether watching a show or with a book in front of you, or just thinking. You are always like a corpse, eyes rolled back, attending to something inside I can't see. How thrilling it is, your body in this room. It might be dead, but I think it is thinking. Things like cosmogenesis and whether change is possible on a large scale and how to make a sign for an inconspicuous idea, and why to value this line of reason over some other, and the unsayable, and the purpose of this period. It's a pleasure to not be here with you, and the conviction with which you say your sentences means it is not sex we are having. In bed together, we could be alone, the quaking pieces of my body approaching a meridian until a crack opens in the wall, letting in a blinding light from outside, and we completely forget each other. Um, so I've had the pleasure recently 
um, of getting to see a lot of minimalist sculpture and painting um, and getting to experience um, just how very real those objects are. Um, so I wanted to write a poem that attempted to be as real as those sculptures and paintings. Um, and the poem fails, but I think it's, um, it's about the attempt and about the failure. So this is called In Terms of Specific Objects, uh, after Robert Smithson, Agnes Martin, Fred Sandback, and Donald Judd. I love you. That is an exit. I had your hair in my hands, but the breath of it has passed through a doorway made of taut yarn. It isn't real. The sheer body isn't real. The scent I can't name. I'm sure it has left, but gone nowhere. I love you. That is a box made of Douglas fur with nothing in it. It can't hold. It can't hold. Meanwhile, blood swims, and we exhale dangling syllables, forgetting one leg for the other two. Hear the sound of our limbs, deranged, dislodged, unliquidated. Amid the action, there is a good deal of waiting and you give me leave to stretch out like a lattice of pencil lines under a wash of white paint. I love you. What a pile of rocks. Lie still as I pour them over your chest from a tin bucket. What have I uncorked? Things colliding into things, ripping apart the paper, the paper where my head is when I sleep. I am drawn to signs that imply other places as much as I am drawn into places. Um, I won't say anything about this one because uh, I squished that all into the title. And the title is, One is a Different Color Underneath or Dissolving the Power Differential by Means of an Ultimate Divine Negation. Women of the Northeast climbing up a wet rock face you all smell like mud. I will grope along with a lot of you. And when Anna's fingers lose hold of one slick limestone shelf, she'll begin to tumble backward, but her arms will catch my hair, strings of dirty Spanish moss growing down my back, clinging there. Lourdes has taken the rear, and she helps us both. 
even offering her shoulder to Anna's foot. Amy is climbing too and reaching for a knotted root. She finds herself grasping a ground mole, its big, weird, hairless hands entwined with her fingers. The mole bites her wrist and she flings it over the cliffside into the creek below. It dies when it hits the shale bed and then rolls into the water. Men of the Northeast, converging on a soggy sycamore grove where the cliff meets the creek. They are digging holes with their hands, kneeling in the mud and scooping out clumps of it. They move around like tractors hung with clammy human skin. A clod of dirt hits Shane's cheek. It sticks there for a moment and then loosens, falling into the crook of Russell's knee. He is on all fours, picking caked mud off a stone he's unearthed. He puts the corpse of a red newt into the hole where the stone has been. Then the gods of Canada come and strike fury into the deep heart of the rock face. Like lightning, it shatters and buries us all. Um, so for a couple years, um, I lived in this huge apartment building on the Upper West Side on 86 and Broadway. And all of a sudden I um, started waking up with um, nightmares of the apocalypse. Um, so I would be startled awake by a sound and I was um, absolutely convinced that the world was ending. Um, and so I, I started thinking about um, if this were true, and it never was, um, what it would be like to, to write while all that was happening, um, would my, what would happen to my words, would they dissolve along with me? Um, and so this poem is about that. Um, it's about the difference between telling about something and um, being a part of the thing. Um, another thing I've been, uh, I have been and had been for a while listening to a lot of blues, blues music. And um, I've been really um, drawn to the images in the blues about uh, a final reckoning or just the end, imagining an end. And so there's some blues lyrics in here from various um, standards. So the title is, uh, and this is gonna be the last poem that I read. So um, the title is No Dying Over in Glory Land. There begins the slow rise of an alien hum too uniform and resoundingly panoramic to originate in anything of this world. I go to the window and look out. It is night, but the darkness has changed to a blinding yellow. 
rimming the jagged architecture with a pulsing halo as thick as paint, like the light of a cartoon sun. The whole landscape is flattened by this brightness. The post boxes, parking meters, and hydrants have lost their shadow, all studio lit and droning. I watch a brick apartment building across the way at the intersection of two roads. It is where my family lives, mother, father, sister, brother, friend and neighbor, each at their own window. The facade is blanched and flickering yellow. Then the building atomizes. The bricks loosen from each other and disperse into a cloud spreading over the golden sky. The windows turn black and float out like unmoored boats swarming the sea. Said. Said. I said more, little finger, little finger thingies, put them back, back in a bag, you small coffer, small baby, I remember drooling on the lilac dirt. You heard a fursky, dear. I look at I, uh, I, uh, in a palette on the flower, bird, bird, two feet in the ground, mom bird, too, looking good. Mom, I want to lips you again, kisses, I don't know what my name is. Is it your head with petals in it? Mom, I want to lips you again, kisses, I don't know what my name is. Is it your head? with petals in it, squished in bed, in bits. Here, hold them for me in your thing. Let's hold things. Thanks, everyone. Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.